though this past year has and continues to come with its struggles and difficulties. It's also taught us about our incredible ability to adapt to circumstances. And that's what Peg and I have chosen to embrace. So to those of you listening right now, I want to personally invite you to check out our virtual yoga shala, where we have been experimenting and exploring the different ways we can share this multifaceted experience of yoga with you, our community, from short form classes to month-long courses. To view what's coming up, visit ashtangadispatch.com backslash online dash courses. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up to our email list where we share writings, interviews, upcoming offerings, and so much more. Thanks for listening and your continued support. Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I'm Peg Mulqueen, your host, along with Megan Powell. It was actually my husband, Robert, who first met today's guest, Dan Nevins, as part of the Wounded Warrior Project. In 2004, after an explosion in Iraq, Dan lost both his legs. And at the time that Robert met him, Dan was heading up the Warrior Speak program helping wounded veterans tell their stories as he began telling his. Now, normally Robert and my worlds rarely collide, but Dan is not only a veteran and motivational speaker, he also practices and teaches yoga. Even though my poses look nothing like the charts that you see with all the little bodies, like doing all the little poses, right? My, my body doesn't look anything like those poses, but I'm doing it 100% perfectly correct. And that's what I try to share with people. I'm like, stop looking at, uh, you know, yoga fashion Instagram things. That's not what the pose is. This is what the pose is for you. How does it feel? though how he was introduced to yoga is a story in and of itself. In 2014, during a really dark time, Dan made the fortunate mistake of opening up to his friend Anna, who had just completed her 200-hour teacher training. The first human being I shared this with, I told her everything that was happening, and I went tears and snot and the whole thing, Peg, like, the whole thing. And... She just, at the end of me talking, she paused and she said, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. And I said, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. I was so mad, Megan, I was so mad. You don't even know, like, I was like, no, dog, like, absolutely not. To say that Dan was reluctant is an understatement. Though who could blame him, really? And his first lesson? It's pretty much a disaster. Peg, it was hot in there. It's a, you know, it's a power yoga studio. And she's you know, doing like warrior poses and like, you know, outstretched legs. And, and I was like, just remember, it's like really painful and I'm sweating and I'm unstable. And she was saying these stupid things like, 
root down, rise up. What the fuck does that even mean? Like what? And I was just mad. And then I just remember one time it was, it was in Warrior One and I was particularly unstable. And I'm like trying to do the pose and I'm so wobbly. And she goes, press your feet into the earth. And I was like, say feet one more time, Anna. Watch what happens to you. Like the, my old thug was coming out from Baltimore. I'm like, say feet, say feet again. It was during his second lesson. That's right. Somehow she got him to agree to three. But in his second lesson, he did something that surprised them both. He took off his prosthetics and decided to practice on his knees. So here I am. I'm like warrior one. Here I go. Visualizing the roots. And in that moment, the earth, the, the planet, sent this jolt of power, fucking lightning up through my body. <laughs> and my arms flew over my head and I just felt 10 feet tall and more powerful than I ever felt my entire life. It was like the earth was saying, Dan, where have you been for the last 10 years? Just floating above an own prosthetic, disconnected from the thing that connects everything and everyone. Last time that Megan and I saw Dan was six years ago. Obama was president, and we were part of a group that taught yoga on the White House lawn during the annual Easter egg roll. A lot has changed since then, but here's one thing that hasn't. Dan's enthusiasm for life. I'm not limiting my life for anyone or anything, because I know how precious it is. I know how short it is, and I know how quickly it can be gone. You know, I gotta tell you, when the year anniversary of COVID came up, it didn't take me long to figure out who I wanted to have on. I reached out to Dan, because if there is anyone who knows about perseverance, resilience, and the importance of living every moment, it's Dan. Dan is a master storyteller. He had Megan and me in tears, laughing and crying, sometimes at the same time. What a gift it is to bring you today's episode. Meet Dan Nevins, veteran, motivational speaker, yoga teacher, and our really good friend. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Hello. Hey, is outside okay? Is it windy sounding or anything? No, but we're a little jealous of the background. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> it's not snowing. I'm sure it's nice in Australia, though. It's not bad, although I'm really close to Antarctica, so, you know, kind of oh, cold. <laughs> so, okay. So you should pick a better spot. <laughs> I need to go to Northern <laughs> Australia. <laughs> mm -hmm. Get closer to the equator, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so good to see you ladies. Oh, it's so good to see your face. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Everybody looks healthy and vibrant. Well, it actually got warmer here a little bit. I mean, when I say warmer, it's 40. <laughs> But it's sunny and 40. And so 
It's that dry cold. It's not as bad as the humid cold. Right. You've heard that. You've heard this before, haven't you? Yeah. Right. <laughs> the same as the heat. Oh man. You know, this is weird because, like, this would be the time we would all be getting together in years past. It's almost. Oh wow. And they, I think that's the last time I saw you. Probably. Right. It's been. A, it's been. A, it's been. A, it's been a good chunk of change. It's been a good while. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, no better time than the present. No, I think this is like, per- I think this is actually perfect timing. Perfect timing. Yeah, see, it's the divine even. Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. You might be the first podcast that Robert ever listens to. I'm pretty sure. Oh. In seven years. Like, I think this might be the first one. He was so excited when I told oh, him so you were cool. going to be on. Oh, he was so excited. Oh, it's funny. Yeah. Anyway, no, he, he actually, in, in a very real sense, he, he really, um, admires you. Like he really, like, like your story really does touch him. Like uh, he's, yeah, you, you meant a lot to him meeting you, hearing you speak, watching the program of the warrior speak grow under you. I mean, you Mm -hmm. were, you were one of the originals, weren't you? I, I, I was the I was the reason it exists. It, it is was you my are, idea. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it was self-serving, right? Because because it came from I'm not the only person out here with a story to tell. So let's go recruit more people mm-hmm. and then teach them how to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we start by you telling your story? Uh, wow, you know when I when I think of when I think of like my story, I'm like, I, there's a trillion places to start. Right. Um, but I guess one of the easy places to start is the beginning and without taking too long, you know, I, I grew up in, in Baltimore city. So if you've ever seen the wire, uh, well, actually I was in the County, I was in Baltimore County, but right across the city line. So it was, it was a sketchy time. There was, you know, uh, still involved with violence right at my front door, drug gangs, like right at my front door. It was always like an obstacle course, like uh, getting from my house. Now, to elementary school, it was fine. To middle school, it was fine. But something about the way to high school, geographically, I went through like this really kind of crazy part of town. And I would usually cut through the cemetery that was sort of in between two different projects. So I was like, I'd much, I have a much easier time cutting through a cemetery to go to school uh, than to go like on the street and the sidewalk because it was actually a much less dangerous route. <clears throat> and I say that just to say, I don't have any good graveyard stories about getting to school, but it was just, it was a, a, a rough place to grow up. Well, that says something. If the graveyard is the safe way to get <laughs> as, as a kid, if the graveyard right. is the safe way to get to school, <laughs> like that's the chosen route that says. Right. Yeah. It does. It does speak, you know, some volumes about it. And like most of the kids that I grew up around, I was a product of a broken home, but a little bit different in the fact that it was my mom that left when I was 13. And so my dad did the best he could to raise my brother and I, and, you know, and he tried, he, I mean, he, he was a truck driver, so he was gone for weeks at a time. So I was 13, my brother was 16 and then onward. So, you know, it was typically, you know, my, my dad would go on a shopping trip right before he left for a couple of weeks and then fill the refrigerator with like lunch meat and like wonder bread and like mayonnaise and like soda, right? Like all these really nutritious 
it was some rich crackers, maybe some port wine cheese if we were like really lucky. Uh, and then he would go for two weeks. And then my brother being 16 or, or 17 or 18 as the years went by, as soon as my dad would leave, he'd call up all his friends and they'd all come over and drink a bunch of beer and smoke weed and eat all the food in the house. And so I was lucky. I was just very lucky that on my 13th birthday, my dad gave me the, the worst gift you could ever give a 13 year old on their birthday, which is also the best gift I've probably ever received. And that was that he took me down to high school on my 13th birthday. And I'm a December 22nd baby. So, uh, anybody with Christmas era kids, just please make sure you wrap their birthday presents in birthday paper, not Christmas paper. And don't combine gifts. Birthday, Christmas, it's just terrible. It's traumatic to do to a kid. Just, just, just don't do it. My mom's December 27th and my sister's the 18th. It's yeah, a yeah. big deal. It's a big <laughs> freaking deal. It's a big deal. It totally is. Uh, but that gift he got me was a work permit. So my 13th birthday gift was that I would get no more birthday gifts or Christmas gifts. Uh, and that I could have a job. So on my 13th birthday, I got a job washing dishes at the Burnbrae Dinner Theater in Glen Burnie, Maryland. And I've never been unemployed for a single day since. So so that sort of work ethic was it was a gift uh, that was unlike anything that could be wrapped. And I'm, I'm, you know, as I look back, I'm, I'm pretty grateful for that. But it wasn't fun. And neither was the, you know, the TV being the babysitter. So I, you know, I grew up in the era of family sitcoms, like Cosby show. Turns out though Cosby wasn't so great, but Cliff Huxtable nailed it as a dad. You know what I'm saying? Like he crushed it. I was, when I skipped school in the days, it was sort of too dangerous to go to school. I'd go, I watched like leave it to beaver reruns and uh, little house on the prairie, like those wholesome shows. And then I just, you know, I watched them because that was like what I was doing or what there was to do. But every time I did, it was just a reminder of what I didn't have, like that wholesome family unit. And I sort of grew up in sort of the want in that space for for like what I saw on TV, what a family was supposed to be like. And then I, my dad actually served during Vietnam. He did not go to Vietnam. He served during Vietnam. He was stationed in Germany. But still didn't change the way that he was treated when he came home. So he had nothing good to say about the military and he actually strongly encouraged my brother and I to not ever do that you know I lived in a low-income neighborhood so that's where the recruiters sort of like prey on the young innocent uh, people that want want something different in their life like here we go and uh, I was always sort of deterred away from that and so I I trusted my dad so I I left the military alone my, my story is a military story so I think it's just important to you know, kind of talk about. So there I was watching TV. It was the summer before my senior year of high school. I had done my second junior year because I was so good, so good at the first time. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, like second, the first time I was went to work instead of going to school, I think I missed like 90 days of school because I was making money. And so that actually I thought about quitting school, but something made me stay. And so I did my junior year twice. And here I am the, right before my senior year watching TV as normal. And then back in the day before um, the awesome television choices we have nowadays, even though I don't really watch TV anymore, uh, back before there were 24-hour news, what would happen is they would interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special news bulletin. And all the young people are like, what's that mean? And yeah, it just means that 
this is the way it used to happen before 24 hour news. And then interrupted my program with a special report about a unit that was being deployed. It must've been a Maryland national guard unit or a unit from Maryland because it was local TV for me because we couldn't afford cable. And I just remember it was a thing we've seen way too often. It was a military deployment ceremony. And it was the thing that pulls at your heartstrings right now. It was the, the, TV zooming in on all the embraces and the tears coming from the spouse's eyes and the kids holding up their their glitter paint signs like, hey, mom or dad, come home safe, come home soon. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like that really touching moment. And um, I'd love to say that I was touched, but, but I wasn't. I was just a jaded punk kid and I was just pissed off that it was interrupting what I wanted to watch. And, and here we go. I'm just waiting for it to be over and kind of secretly pissed off and just sitting there tolerating it because it was just another reminder of this family that I didn't have. Like all these people, yeah, they're going off in the harm's way, but look what they're leaving. They're leaving this this wonderful family and they're going off and doing these things. And I was just, again, I didn't feel good about it, but then I saw something that changed everything. I saw all those people in uniform leave their families and come together. And there were more, embraces and more cameras zooming in on these tears and just this group of people coming together all wearing the same uniform with the american flag on their shoulder and it just kind of hit me i was like well that's a family that i can choose because that's what it looked like to me and so i kind of marinated on a couple days and went down the recruiting center and took all the tests and did the thing i was like i was going to do it against my dad's wishes but didn't matter i was going to be 18 soon anyway and I could just go get it done. And I just remember going through all the process and taking the test and it did really well. I could be whatever I wanted to be. But if I wanted the college fund, which I did, I had a list of like this long that I can choose to be. And so I chose that I was going to be a mechanic because I was going to learn how to do something that was marketable for after. Like I could learn how to shoot missiles, but there's really no translatable skill in the civilian workforce. Um, so I chose to be a mechanic and here I was and I was just ready to go. And I got this, I swore in and I'm ready to go. Senior years, high school had started. I had, wasn't doing any work because I was like, I'm going to go join the army. There's a war about to happen. I'm going to go fight. This is going to be the deal. And this paperwork said, hey, you know, after the swear in, it's like, hey, you're now in the delayed entry program. And I'm like, no, what's the delay? And they're like, well, you have to graduate high school first. And I was like, oh, so listen, um, I haven't been doing any work. And this is just not, uh, I wasn't really prepared for this. I wasn't ready. And uh, I got this piece of paper that my guidance counselor had to sign. And basically what it said was, hey, am I going to graduate? And I just remember her looking at me after she pulled my file and saying, oh, honey, yeah, there's no way you're going to graduate. And I was so mad. And disappointed in myself, really. Um, and I would like tears. I mean, I just remember being in her office and I had these like anger tears. They weren't, you know, I wasn't sad. I was just, I never had a goal before in my whole life. Like zero goals. I mean, other than like surviving my way to school and back. Um, so this was the first time I ever like thought about doing anything bigger than myself. And now she was telling me that it wasn't going to happen. And um, she saw like the disappointment in her face. She goes, let me make some calls. And, you know, a couple of days later, she called me back in her office. She goes, hey, there's a way you can do it, but you're not going to like it. 
And I just remember, like, I just remember vividly this, like, feeling of butterflies in my stomach as I'm sitting here waiting for this woman who I've never met before, by the way. I had no idea where the guidance counselor's office was until I had to go seek her out. Uh, didn't know who she was, uh, but now I'm sitting here and, like, this woman, like, my whole future is riding on what she has to say. And she goes, you can graduate um, with your class if you pass every bit of your day school and you go to three nights a week of night school and Saturday morning school. If you do all of that and pass them all, you'll graduate. And I did. And uh, I just remember, well, like if you remember your history, though, senior year of high school, 1991 for me, the war started, Operation Desert uh, Storm started in February of 1991. And it was over, the war was over in March of 1991. I mean, I wish I wish all wars were that short, but you know, I knew I still I still had to join. So after I graduated high school, I had three days to uh, celebrate, and then I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, for basic training and my advanced training and airborne school, and then off to Germany, which started an eight-year active duty uh, enlistment for me, all peacetime, and I loved it. Like I loved being in Germany. I loved being the poor kid from Baltimore who got to experience culture for the first time, who as a enlisted person in, in the United States army, I learned values for the first time, loyalty, integrity, selfless service, teamwork. I learned things that I would never learned growing up. And I you know, was starting to be successful. I got promoted ahead of my peers and then I became a non-commissioned officer. Now that was a whole nother sort of layer of like success that I got to like, take part of but still all during peacetime then i got to go to fort bride north carolina uh fort bride north carolina have you ever been there ish no i I mean i think around is it to the southern part of the state uh it could be i'm trying to it's in fayette near fayetteville they call it Vietnam. okay it's crazy it's it is it's pretty easy there's no reason to be there other than it's the best place in the world to be a soldier. Like literally, I get to jump out of every aircraft that you can jump out of. I get to shoot every weapon system known to man. I was a training NCO for the largest company in the United States Army for 18th Airborne Corps. Um, it was so, I mean, such like the best possible place to be a soldier and the worst possible place to be a single dude. They were... 18, 18 eligible bachelors. Let's just use, let's just uh, up-level the language. 18 eligible men <clears throat> for every eligible one woman. So, ladies, if you're listening, if you're single and you're just looking for some adventure, just go to Fort Bragg. You got your pick. It's just any, like, you and you, and they all look good, too. They're physically fit. They take care of themselves. <laughs> I'm like, mentally, maybe, maybe not so much, but but like you know ladies you can fix that right uh yeah it was it was but i love i did i love my time at fort bragg and as it got time to either re-enlist or get out of the army i was like right there on the fence like what i want to do and i just chose to to get out um i i joined a fight and there was no war happening but thank thank goodness and though I just, no one joins the army uh, to get rich. And I had that, you know, growing up poor, I just, I wanted to start to accumulate some wealth, to, to do something, to be the first person in my family to go to, go to college. 
<clears throat> and that's what it did. Uh, ultimately, I moved to California, but I stayed in the National Guard. So I did the simultaneous enlistment from the active duty into the National Guard because I couldn't just give up the uniform that made me who I was. Like I became a man in that uniform and putting, putting that uniform on, it was clear that what my purpose was, there was no like uh, contemplation about like, Oh, what is my purpose? I knew exactly what my purpose was. And that was um, just having default purpose in your life. It's, it's pretty beneficial in a lot of ways. So you like, you always know sort of where you're going or at least where you could go. Did you find that sense of belonging? that belonging that oh. you were looking for? Oh, a hundred percent. Like my, my best friends in the world, I cannot talk to them for years and years. And I'm going to use a term here that I don't mean specific. I don't mean actually, but it's just a term we use. I mean, these are my hide the body friends. Like if I ever had to hide a body, not that I will ever have to hide a body, <laughs> But if I ever had to hide a body, I could pick up the phone and people I haven't talked to in a decade would just show up with shovels and an alibi and things. And that's like the bet. Like you can't. It's thicker than blood. It's thicker than blood. But then you got the family. That's why you wouldn't leave. I mean, how? why, why would you leave? You, how could uh, you leave it if it's going well? Right. And then so here I'm in the National Guard. But let me tell you, let me tell you. The National Guard, nothing like active duty. Nowadays, yes, because the Guard and Reserve components had to go fight these wars, and they still are, right? But pre-9-11, the Guard had no money, and they were untrained, especially in California. I can't speak for every state because the the National Guard goes by by state. I just remember specifically – 9-11 9-11 happening. I was a stockbroker. I was still in the National Guard. And I just remember walking into the office and turning on the news and watching the planes come into the tower and just riveted like everyone was that day. And in that in those moments, they were talking about Osama bin Laden, which I've never heard of before. They were talking about terrorism. They were talking about potentially going to war. And I'm just engrossed in the, in the um, dialogue that's unfolding on TV. And then I got this feeling that I you know the creepy feeling like someone's staring at you? Mm-hmm. Um, as a dude, I don't get that feeling very often. Like this was a new feeling to me, but I felt it in my soul. And it just gave me the chills. And I looked and it was my boss looking at me. His name is Bob Harding. His, his face was white as a ghost. His eyes were like popping out of his head. And I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, damn, they're talking about going to war. You're still in the army. Are you going to have to go? And I thought about it for a minute and I was like, no way, <laughs> not with these people. This is the California guard, bro. This is not Fort Bragg. Like my, if I was still at Fort Bragg, we'd be gone. Four hour recall to anywhere in the world. My gear would already be packed right now, but not at all. Like we had people in the guard, you know, I talk about, you talk about Fort Bragg. They look like dudes on the cover of a romance novel. Like, you know, it looks like Fabio with short hair and like a weapon system, you know? You know, it just fit and just looks like, you know, like some sort of like movie. In the not, California a stock, guard. not a stockbroker from LA, from California. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a stockbroker from California. And not, I mean, these people that, that were in the guard with me were, um, you know, career guardsmen had, hadn't shot their weapon since basic training, which could have been a decade ago. 
hadn't done a physical fitness test since then either. And it was very clear that they hadn't, you know, there wasn't enough uniform to go around the buttons and the buttonholes didn't line up on the front. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was a stretch. No pun intended. Literally. It just, they didn't look and they didn't look the part, you know, like there's height and weight standards. There's all these physical fitness standards that happen in the military. And at Fort Bragg, that's 100% accurate. And with the California Guard, it wasn't happening. And so I looked at Bob. I was like, not, not with these people, like no way. And I was right for just a couple more years. And then we did get deployed. And I just remember like, how did this happen? It took our whole battalion of over 700 people to make one deployable company of just over 100 people. So, so basically one in seven were fit to be deployed. And of those that made it on the deployment, I'd say 40% of them were like really close to the line. And it, you know, I was just baffled. I'm like, what are we going to do? I was in a combat engineer unit. So I went from an infantry uh, unit at Fort Bragg to a combat engineer unit in California. And I'm like, what is, what are we going to do? There's no combat engineer mission that's happening over there, but I'll, we're going, so I got to go. How old are you at this point? 30, 30 years old. Like sparkly, shiny, brand new 30 year old staff sergeant, you know? And uh, when I say sparkly, I mean kind of crusty and older, but whatever. And that's what's funny is like 30, I was like an old guy on the deployment <laughs> at 30. Right, we're mm-hmm. we're fighting for we're fighting for the young people, right? But I mean, that, but it's true. I mean, that's how it, that's how it goes. And I just remember, like, we we went into Kuwait, and then we were waiting to see what we were going to do. So we finally found out we're we're going to this place in in Balad, Iraq, to this place called LSA Anaconda. It was like the the logistics hub for the whole theater of operations that was happening over there. And we were supposed to be, our brigade combat team was supposed to be in charge of the physical security of the base, which is like in the guard towers and in the, uh, at the main gates, like making sure the bad guys don't get in or if something happens, you're like reporting things in the guard tower. And that was a stretch. That was a stretch for us, like in my mind. And then right before we started, you know, we're, we're in our, we're in our tents when we first got there. It's like 120 degrees outside. It's 140 degrees in the tents because there's like some air conditioning, but it's broken and it's miserable and we're kind of feeling it out. And they're like, Hey, change your company. So Alpha Company 579th Combat Engineer Design, my company, uh, was being attached to a brand new task force called Task Force Tacoma. And we were going to be reporting to first infantry division. And it was going to be our job to act on operational intelligence, to kick in doors and chase down the bad guys. And I was like, what? Uh, we weren't ready. I'm like, <clears throat> when I say we weren't ready, that's the largest understatement uh, that I could. That it, we were nowhere close to ready to be the tip of the spear like that. And But that doesn't mean you still do it. And I just, I remember this and, and I'm not proud of this by the way, but I think it's kind of important because, you know, the older that I get, like when I first started telling my story, I just, I told the highlights, you know, uh, but now I kind of think the, the truth of these stories lives in the details. I, I remember getting that sort of information and I was a leader of the first squad, first squad leader, third platoon. And I got scared. 
I'm like, I don't, I don't want to fight a war with these people. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know them. We just pulled from all over the state of California to be deployed. And I didn't know these people. And here we go. Um, now we're going to be like doing some really dangerous things. And everyone, I just remember everyone went to the phone banks to call their, their, their loved ones, their families. And I had a, a new family, had a, a new wife and a daughter. And um, we didn't actually leave on the best terms because she wanted me to try to get out of the mission because we were supposed to start this new life together. I was like, what do you mean try to get out of it? Like, you're asking me to like try to go back on a commitment? Like, no. But I mean, it comes from a real place because her father served during Vietnam, just like my dad did, but he was actually in Vietnam and he was a helicopter pilot and a good one. And as a result, like he really never left Vietnam. Uh, he was mm-hmm. just deployment after deployment after deployment. And then his head never left ever. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, he was a terrible father, terrible husband. And, uh, so I think she feared that that would happen to me. And so I get it, right? I get it. But then we yeah. left. I just remember when I first got deployed, I just picked up my gear and left. And I barely even said goodbye. Um, because we're like, we weren't okay. And it, it got okay. But while everyone was running off to call their families, I didn't. I went straight to the internet cafe and I pulled up my address book on my email accounts. This is back when email was kind of newer. Right, it wasn't that new, but it was, it was brand kind of new. I, I love how you have to explain to Megan, like, <laughs> I know, right? I know. She's here to keep my keep my perspective, right? Uh, but I just remember I pulled up my my Yahoo address book, and I started emailing everyone I still knew on active duty, all my friends from Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. Your and family, are you? Yeah, my family, and it's a but with a different motive. I was calling it, I was emailing to say, where are you? Are you in theater? Can you get me out of here? Not to go home, not to leave, but to get out of here and go serve with you instead. Wherever you're at, can you get me attached? And thankfully, um, all the emails uh, either went into the abyss or were never returned. And then we started a ridiculous operational tempo. And we started losing people. Because we weren't ready, like we weren't, and then uh, we weren't trained, we weren't prepared. We had Vietnam era weapons, and we had green Humvees with plywood for roofs, and and sandbags for armor, and just looked like the Beverly Hillbillies rolling into town. And we didn't look professional. We had the the tan desert uniforms with the green woodland uh, vests and and plate carriers and and helmets. Like we looked like you know, the fourth world, like decided to have an army and just rolled out. Like it was, it didn't look pretty. We were not ready. We didn't have radio etiquette down from the simplest tasks. We weren't ready. And, uh, and like I said, we, we started losing people and there's something really powerful about gold. You know, I talked about a little bit like that, my first goal, like leaving, getting, you know, graduating high school so I could serve. But we all, you know, know that there's real power in goals and writing them down and, and manifesting goals and doing the work it takes. But there's something really powerful about goals, especially when, you know, in our case, the goal was to be at least an efficient combat unit because there's no choice. It was happening. No, like it was happening. So, 
we have a goal of at least being okay at it. And the consequence, though, of not meeting that goal is that your best friends die. The amount of human transformation potential in, in moments like that is infinite. And I watch this group of untrained Beverly Hillbilly, unfit, can barely do the simplest tasks, right? Become one of the most amazing, efficient group of warfighters I've ever had the privilege of serving with, let alone the opportunity to lead. And we got to be good at our jobs. And the level and sophistication of the missions we were getting were sort of elevating. I remember the Battle of Fallujah started, Operation Phantom Fury started on November 7th, 2004. And I was not in Fallujah, did not take part in Phantom Fury. It was a predominantly Marine operation. And I remember it because I had a medic, and the best medic in the world is named Sergeant Boutreau. Sergeant First Class, now Sergeant First Class, uh, retired, uh, Goutreau. And he was like the worst soldier in the world, the best medic. And what I, what I mean by that, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad soldier, but you know, in the military, we have things called like light discipline and noise discipline, meaning you're at a, on a 2 a.m. patrol. Even if it's like a root, more routine patrol, you don't shine bright lights or fire or anything because you can see that in the dark. And so the enemy, if they're there, they know where to put the bullets. Same thing with loud noises. If you make a loud noise, the enemy knows where to put the bullets. Sergeant G would be the guy, 2 a.m. patrol, like we're chilling. He'd light up a cigarette. Man, I hate it here. Oh, my God. I think my lady I mean, is back home cheating. And oh, my God, my kids are crazy. Oh, I can't wait. This is so, I hate it. Oh, my God. Oh, like the bright red cherry on his cigarette, screaming into oblivion, and like starting to man, ain't nothing gonna happen out here. It's crazy. But if things were real, things got real. Sergeant G could shoot, move, communicate, keep us patched up, and in the fight, no one, no one was better than him. And so, when the Marine Corps needed medics, I wasn't surprised when they took Sergeant G. And I wound up with a new medic, a guy named Dan Smee. And so Dan Smee, I never met him before this day. It was, it was like right on November 7th. And it might have been the 6th because Sergeant G was already gone. And so Sergeant, and so Dan Smee was from the California Guard too, but from a whole other part of California, like SoCal with the surfers. I just remember I met him. His helmet was cocked back on his head, and he had this blonde hair hanging up in his face, which is not okay, by the way. And because we're good soldiers now, and this guy looks like who we used to be. And this blonde hair, he's just like, oh, my God, Sergeant Nevins, bro. So good to meet you. And I'm like, this guy, this guy's high right now. No way. Like, And <clears throat> I just remember meeting him, and he seemed cool. He was also at Fort Bragg once upon a time. So I was like, okay, you got to be cool in there somewhere. And we started, again, our ridiculous operational tempo. We're doing some Ford of sort of sometimes five missions in a day. And then here he is, and fortunately nothing happens, but he seems likable. So I'm like, all right, here we go. And then a few days go by, and we get intelligence November 9th of 2004 that some of the insurgency was leaving Fallujah because I guess they were getting their butts kicked by the Marines, so they needed an excuse to leave to come attack our area of operations as the logistics hub sort of like supplying that effort downrange. And then, so like the most professional army in the world, we drew up a battle plan. 
to meet the enemy where they were. We practice, prepare, rehearse for a 72-hour dismounted counterinsurgent operation. This one was a little different. Normally, my platoon sergeant would be leading the charge along with my platoon leader, and I would just be part of the team, like getting it done, handling my my area of responsibility. But my platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class Magalini, wasn't able to make this one. See, he had been—I don't want to say struggling. He never, he never, he didn't speak much, and he definitely never complained. He was the hardest working human being I've ever met in my entire life, and I just remember maybe a couple weeks before we got this intel, he had been like, he, we saw him wince one time. He winced once. And we're like, well, that doesn't happen. So like, Hey, what's, what's up? And then he pulled up his shirt and showed us like a two inch protruding abdominal hernia. And we're like, you got, you cannot like be out here. Like they got to get it fixed. So he got surgery scheduled for November 10th. to go get it fixed. And so now here it is the ninth. He's going to surgery. He wouldn't be effective in the leadership role anyway. I'm the first squad leader, so I am now the acting platoon sergeant. And I just remember uh, this is my mission, so taking it a little more seriously. And we felt like we had everything right. We prepared for every possible sort of contingency. And now here we go. I remember waking up the next morning at probably 3 a.m. We had a 4 o'clock start time and doing all the pre-combat checks with each vehicle and I get to my lead vehicle and I go to tap my driver, a guy named Smitty, he turns around, it's Mike, my boss. And see, he just volunteered to put himself in harm's way just to drive us because part of the, he was going to do is just drive, which by the way, a platoon sergeant doesn't drive a vehicle. That'd be like the, the CEO sweeping up the entryway, right? Like it just doesn't really happen. But he was like, I can do this and still make my flight. And at least I can be with you guys as you all go into harm's way. Wow. And I just remember like giving Mike a high five. I got in the vehicle. We left the main gates of LSA and the Condat exactly zero four hundred hours right on time, military precision. And then I remember leaving that gate and we went to this T intersection. We took a right on a well traveled paved road that we called Route Over and then an almost immediate left on a very sparsely traveled poor excuse of a dirt road and Route 12 was supposed to be our dismount site, maybe seven kilometers down this road and, you know, after a couple of turns or whatever. And I just remember it's pitch black outside, eerily silent. Uh, it was low-hanging cloud coverage, so you couldn't see the moon or stars. We're in blackout drive. The only thing I remember hearing as my head was bowed in prayer like it was before every mission was the 6.2 liter Cummings diesel engine in my Humvee as we just moved carefully and slowly down this miserable excuse for a road. And I just remember being in that prayer and then boom! The silence was destroyed by the deafening blast and sent my 18,000 pound vehicle about six feet in the air in a ball of fire. I remember being in the prayer when the explosion happened, I could feel and hear my truck basically disintegrate around my body and I might have been knocked out for a couple seconds. I'm not sure because when I opened my eyes, I realized that I had been ejected from the vehicle and my legs remained caught in the, the twisted and burning metal that used to be the floorboard and undercarriage of my truck. And I remember my face felt hot. I had a sickening knot in my stomach. My ears were ringing. I had a taste of blood in my mouth and I was just trying to figure out what happened. It, it, it wasn't kind of coming quickly yet. I, I knew something was wrong. But it wasn't clear yet what, what exactly was happening. And I just remember 
the dust started to descend and I could see a little bit more now because the fire from the blast was starting to engulf my vehicle and that gave me some light. And the first thing I saw was my weapon stuck in the door frame of my vehicle. And I just remember saying to myself, Dan, get up, put your weapon into operation. Dan, get up, put your weapon into operation. And I just, I physically couldn't move. And it, I still don't know why, because I wasn't paralyzed or anything. Maybe mentally, probably going to shock, not really sure. But then I just remember laid back and I took a, a breath and I listened and I heard my team moving with tactical proficiency, securing the perimeter, doing everything they're supposed to do. And I'm supposed to be the guy yelling out commands and they're doing it, but I was saying nothing. But here they are. They're just doing everything right. And I just realize I'm like okay that gave me some time I'm getting they're buying me some time right now and I just looked forward and the dust was still descending but I can see a little more clearly now I look forward to the driver's compartment of the vehicle and I noticed immediately that Sergeant First Class Mike Anolini had made the ultimate sacrifice painfully physically obvious and um, I actually it's who I wear this bracelet for every day this says Sergeant First Class Mike Adelini, Task Force Tacoma, in November 2004, Balad, Iraq. It's a it's a memorial bracelet, and very common. It's actually a little, little too common these days. And I do. I wear it for memorial. We wear it as reminders and to memorialize people that don't get to come home. But I wear it really as a reminder for two pretty important things. And the first is um, it reminds me to work hard because Mike was the hardest working human being. I've ever met and it just makes me remember that a goal without hard work is just a wish and wishes aren't really good for anything and they certainly don't keep people alive on the battlefield so if I have a goal or something they want I have to know that I must be willing to do all the work that's necessary to get the result that I want and so it's a reminder for me to work hard and it's a reminder for me to live because well Mike doesn't get to live but not just but to live, not just be alive. Going through day-to-day and reaction to what's happening around me and, you know, like the, the outside forces of my life trying to push me a certain way. And like, no, this bracelet reminds me that I'm the author of my life and whatever I want, I just make manifest by my actions. I mean, intentions and my actions. If I want it, like I need to set. And it doesn't, and I don't mean necessarily just like work. Mm-hmm. I mean, like being a good dad as a priority in my life being a a responsible business owner, being a a good human being, being kind, being compassionate as a choice of how I want to live my life. Because it's easy to forget sometimes to be kind when you're angry. But like it's, I look and it reminds me like to get back to my true north of like who it is I actually want to be as a choice. And so I'm grateful for the bracelet, but obviously not for the moment that created it. Because I remember seeing Mike and then realizing I was hurt really bad, but really didn't know the extent of my injuries. And then, like, we're trained. Okay, I'm starting to figure out. I can, I can, my hands are a little numb, but I can start to – I can move a little bit. And so I start with my helmet, and it came apart in two pieces in my, ha- in my hands. And I was like, oh, that's not a good start. But I'm conscious, and that's a good thing. And then I continue to check myself, my arms, my torso. Just getting feeling back in my hands, and then I can move. I'm feeling a little better now. But when I reached up for my leg, it was I was on my back, and my legs were caught up in the truck, and I couldn't physically pull them out. But I just remember reaching up, 
And right around the time I got toward my thigh, I felt the, the unmistakable arterial blood spurt with every beat of my heart. What had happened was the two pieces of shrapnel, well, many pieces of shrapnel from, from the 255 millimeter artillery shells that blew up under my feet and under Mike completely because I was sitting right behind Mike. Uh, two pieces of shrapnel had tore through my thigh. So I had about an inch of flesh holding my thigh all the way almost up in my hip on my left side. Um, an inch of flesh in the front and the back, and there was a big piece of shrapnel still lodged in my femur. And I didn't really know that at the time. At the time, I'm like, my femur already is cut in half. I'm feeling this blood. I don't have I don't have time. You can die. That that kills you. Yes. Two minutes. Two minute bleed out. Right. Like all your blood just goes. So yes, very much, very much a uh, catastrophic life ending wound. And um and all this, it's, it's instantaneously I'm processing all that. And I just started like I was giving up and I was losing what seemed like all of my blood in this miserable place on the planet. And I just, you know how they say when you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes. You've heard that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this was not that it was instead of like my life flash, it was more like a, a like I was watching a slideshow almost of things that I forget to do, like uh, projects or goals left unfulfilled or like ambitions left. Un- and I couldn't, I can't even remember what they were specifically. I just remember like was the quality of it. Now, if it was 16 years earlier, I might remember a little better, but right now I don't, but I remember the last one. And the last one was, it was my, my daughter. She was 10. But now she's all grown up and dressed in white, head to toe, and walking down the aisle without her dad. And I just, I just shot up. I was like, I'm alive. I'm alive. I better do something to keep it that way. And I just reached my hand in that wound almost up to my wrist. I, I thought I was going to like find the artery and stop bleeding like MacGyver, just whoosh, pinch it off and be like, I'm good. It's just not how it happened. And I just pressed and prayed that it would give enough time for the medic to arrive because Sergeant G could fix anything. And it's like, I blinked my eyes and then there was dance me with this fucking hair, <laughs> just lying to my face. Just Sergeant Evans, you're going to be all right. And then it's like, I blinked my eyes and there was a tourniquet on my leg. I blinked again. And uh, one of my team leaders, Sergeant Chili, not even a medic, was putting an IV in my arm. And it's like I blinked again, and there was my whole team, my family, just putting themselves in between me and the truck, putting themselves in harm's way to remove my legs from that vehicle that was still on fire. And it's like I blinked again. I was on a stretcher and then in a helicopter and then right back where I started maybe 10 minutes before at the main gates of LSA and the condo, right where the combat surgical hospital was. And, I remember being pulled out of the, the helicopter and they stuck happy juice in my IV and I was out and I woke up, I don't know how many hours later in the recovery area of the tent. It's a hospital. It's a nice tent. It's a sterile, allegedly sterile tent uh, called a field hospital. And I just remember when I kind of came to, there was a combat nurse's face right in mine and, and I'll never know her name, but I'll never forget her face or what she said to me. She said, Sergeant Evans, you're a very lucky man. 
We managed to repair your femoral artery. We had to take your left leg below the knee. We managed to save your right one for now, but you'll probably lose that one too. And she was right, ultimately. But I just remember right around the time the pity party started to set in, because like, what could a guy with no legs do? I looked and there was my whole team just waiting for me to wake up on the wall of the tent. And uh, they just came over. I shrugged off the pity party. They came over. We told horribly offensive, inappropriate jokes as the military does with each other. It's just how we, it's how we say we love you to each other is by insulting each other and making me feel there was jokes about how short I was now and not going to have legs and, Jokes about returning the roller skates I got for Christmas. I I didn't get roller skates for Christmas. Like just all the things, right? We're just and uh and then we we talked about Mike. We shared some stories, shared some tears, um, and I fell asleep and woke up the next morning at Longstel Regional Medical Center in Germany, where I'd spend the next seven days with multiple surgeries a day, mostly trying to save my right leg and clean out all the infection. It was actually, you know, I had Yes, I very nearly died with loss of blood, but thanks to donors, I got blood volume back up. I fixed my artery. Yes, my leg was gone. Yes, the other one was busted, but like I was going to live. The sketchy part was like the I had Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, and MRSA, Lipoform MRSA. So for those who are not in the medical field, like three of the most deadly bacteria in the world mm-hmm. in my blood, my tissues, and my bones all at the same time. So that was like right, the, the real threat. Um, I didn't know that at the time because all the pain was coming from like what had happened. Right. Um, but it was, a uh, you know, I had seven days at Lancaster Regional Medical Center. And again, I was not in the battle of Fallujah, but the battle of Fallujah was in that hospital with me. Every ward was full. The hallways were full of combat wounded. Most of them Marines, most of them worse off than me. And most of them 18, 19 years old. And I just remember being surrounded by that suffering, the pain, and the, the sounds of that, and the codes, and the hospital staff, and the amazing hospital staff, like saving lives, and uh, working hard, and sometimes not saving lives, and seeing the impact of that on, on the people, right? Just like the whole environment of that was not uh, something you really want to remember, but it's also the best of humanity happening and unfolding with their people, fighting people, fighting for themselves, for other people. And I just remember um, finally getting my spot on a, on a trip back home, finally got a spot on a C-130 and making it back to Walter Reed Army Medical Center, like the best possible surgeons, the best possible team, spending two years there, 30 some different surgeries, mostly in attempt to save my other leg and, which was not ultimately successful, but uh, yeah, two years, lots of surgery, lots of time to become, you know, a whole new version of myself. And so, uh, and it's funny, you know, so now I'm on, I'm on a yoga podcast. Thank you. Uh, but then like, I remember they were like, Hey, we're um, offering some adaptive yoga. I'm like, you need to suck yoga. No, like I'm not, a, I'm a man. I'm a man. And I am, uh, you know, I'm just, I don't have yoga flowing robes or no, I don't have a, a, a man bun. 
I don't own spandex because you know, spandex was a very yoga thing for me. If you ever asked me at the time, um, yeah, it was a hard no, hard no. You couldn't get more firm of a no. And uh, but there I was, um, maybe seeing yoga for the first time because I certainly never exposed to it as a kid. I had maybe heard of it, but didn't really know what it was. But then ultimately, which is a, another story, we may or may not talk about um found yoga when i needed it the absolute most and changed my life dan how do you get from how do you survive that like how do you i mean you are hilarious we're sitting here listening to you and i go between crying and laughing and like not really sure which one i'm settling on here and I can't, and this is how many years ago? 16, 2004. Wow. So it'll be, it'll be 17 in November. And, and I do want to get to the yoga part because mm -hmm. you're a yeah. phenomenal teacher. You are a phenomenal teacher. And I'm just, help me, bring me to here. How do you yeah. get from having the, and it seems especially appropriate given that we've just, we're now approaching a year of mm -hmm. COVID and it's been over a, a year. Very, well, it's been over, but like from our lockdown was like the March 12th, yeah. right? Well, I got home March 20th. I guess oh, I'm got like, it. Got yeah, it. I got, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. In my mind, my, my world, it's March 20th. <laughs> <Close enough>. um, <laughs> but, but we're, we're here a year and it's probably been mm. For many people, one of the most traumatic years that they've had, that they've experienced, um, and it just seems a really good time to talk about resilience. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't even want to call it surviving because it feels like you didn't you survived when you got back to Walter Reed. You survived. Right. Yeah, that's you didn't just survive. Right. Well, and then you go into, well, ultimately you hope to thrive too, right? From surviving to thriving. It's a thing that, you know, kind of cliche, but, but not the thing that people say. But it's funny, you know, you speak about resilience and it is the answer to uh, like everything that's happening right now in our world. And I don't want to make a comparison because it's, it's not fair, um, but I'm grateful for the suffering that I had. Um, to get me to this to this space I know because I'm in the pandemic and the worst part of the lockdown pandemic thing for me is seeing other people suffer because I'm I'm not suffering I'm I'm fine I believe like I know and this is it may get a little static for this so I enjoy not enjoy but I'd respectfully request any internet trolls that may or may not be listening to this. Um, and I know they, you know, I don't mean to make that judgment either, but what I'm saying is I 100% am not afraid of the virus. I don't care about it. I don't think it's a big deal. And you could, I know it's a real virus and I know certain, I know people are at risk and there's high risk groups. It's just not me. I know in my bones, in my bones, I know if I were to catch the virus that I would survive. And as a result, I'd be even more resilient. I would build up T-cell immunity. Build, you know, I would, like, I'm 100% confident. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, dude, it just everything that you described, like, mm -hmm. you've already been through, I mean, what you have already experienced in your life is 
a thousand times more. So that I, so I think I understand that completely. Yeah. And that's why I'm grateful. Like I'm grateful for the, for the, for those experiences that I had, because I did almost die like for real, for real in a couple of different ways. One from like loss of blood and trauma and another one from these bacteria that were trying to kill me. You know, I found out later talking to one of my surgeons when I went to go visit Walter Reed and they, they you know, often I'll get calls if someone's in a similar situation to me, like they, they have, cause I, my leg was a limb salvage. And then three years later, I ultimately decided to take it. My one leg was gone like right away. The other one I saved for three years, then decided to take it off, which was the best decision ever made. So at Walter Reed, if they have someone suffering in that way, they call me and I'll go in and I'll say, Hey, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but this is my story about my, my limb salvage sort of journey and why I chose to take it off. And so, so people can have perspectives to make their own mind up. And there was a guy that was there and he was like, he even looked a lot like me. We were the same height. We got injured in very similar ways. His leg was gone exactly where mine was. Like we were, I mean, you couldn't have been closer to twins if you like, you know, if you created it. And he's my, my surgeon is, well, once my resident, who was a resident when I was there is now the chief of orthopedic surgery at Walter Reed, Colonel Potter. And for us, my generation think that's funny because there's a combat medical surgeon named Colonel Potter, hence MASH. MASH. MASH, right? And so that, that's kind of a big deal. And so uh, he's talking to this and he's like, yeah, you guys are the same. I'm like, well, he's not next to death with infection like you were, or Nevin, call me Nevins, like you were Nevins. I'm like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah. Um, there were a few times we didn't think you would wake up. Like I was like so sick from infection. Like it was, they like I didn't know how close to death I was as a result. But I, it took me years later being there to realize like that that was the story. And so, as a result of of like going through all of that, that it just builds this sort of natural inherent resilience. And when you realize how precious life is and that you don't want to miss out on it you sort of build practices that that are part of my daily life which also build resilience like talking to people calling the people i used to serve with to to connect with them and remind them of good days i mean 22 veterans today take their own life uh, because they forget that life's worth living and so, like, I'm constantly cultivating those reminders with people and reminding myself that life is so much worth living. I'm not limiting my life for anyone or anything because I know how precious it is. I know how short it is, and I know how quickly it can be gone. And so I realize this. And so as a result, like, I do things that maximize my life. Like, I don't want to sit away and waste away. So I, I move my body. Like I practice what I preach. I move my body intentionally at least 30 minutes every single day. And I call and connect with somebody every single day. And I'm grateful every single, I have a, a, a gratitude journal right next to my bed. I write three bullet points of what I was grateful for today, right before I go to sleep. So when I do that, I start sleep with a, and a note of gratitude and I wake up with gratitude in my heart and I just go fucking attack the day. I just, create the life that I want by doing practices that make me more and more resilient to like whatever else is happening next. And, uh, 
And I actually owe a lot of that to yoga. You know, I was good at sort of like inherently uh, knowing that I need to like exercise and need to move my body. But there was something about mindfulness that wasn't in my life. Something about, um, so like one of my daily non-negotiables is meditation. I meditate every single morning, no matter what, before anything happens. Before anything happens, well, maybe I'll use the bathroom. Let's be real, right? I might use the bathroom when I first wake up, uh, you know, whatever. But meditation is a daily non-negotiable. If I wake up late for something and I wake up somehow overslept, whatever it is, and I'm late, I'm just going to be more late for the thing. Period. No matter what, zero exceptions, period. Because I need time to connect into source to like my trillion different words for it, depending on who you are. I, I mean, I feel they all mean the same thing. God, higher self, universe, my spot, like whatever it is, like I'm take time to look inside and just be, just be alive and take that moment to be still and know that I have everything I need to do anything I want right now. And that just sets the day up for success. Dan, how did, how did that happen? How did you, how did you finally get into a yoga class? Like, I, I don't think I know the story. (laughs) Well, I'm going to tell you and it, and hopefully, hopefully it inspires people to be that friend that invite, like I I have a thing that I say now, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with the end is that, I tell everyone at the end of like a, like a speaking engagement or something that I'll do is to, I say, invite a veteran to yoga because you just might save their life. And I was in a dark place, uh, eight years ago. And, you know, I had healed from the physical wounds of war, but I never really even addressed the invisible wounds of war because I didn't have to, you know, uh, PTSD is very common in the world. It's also very common in military circles, especially combat deployments. Here's the deal with PTSD. I don't have it. Never had it, never will. But I say that like this. PTSD is a diagnosis that a doctor gives you after hearing your symptoms, right? And then they maybe do some protocols and then they give you the diagnosis. I wasn't going to see a doctor. No. Not for, not for like anything. Yeah. Fix my bleeding, make me a prosthetic leg. Yeah. But we're not going to talk about my feelings or we're not going to talk about what happened. Like I'm good. And the reality in that was if I would have talked to a doctor, would I have gotten the diagnosis? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Just given the experience, I would have walked into the doctor's office. He would have probably had the form pre-filled out with my diagnosis already on it. Um, but I was grateful because early days in the hospital, I met Wounded Warrior Project and they, they intervened and, you know, had me on a mountain snowboarding and had me out like doing things that proving my disability didn't define me, that I get to define what the rest of my life was going to be like. And, you know, doing it, all these things, it made me realize like, oh, I, there's this coping tool that I can use when things get dark in my head, if I start reliving or re-experiencing some of the things from, from combat, I just change what I'm doing and I go climb a mountain or ride a bike or go play golf. And it take it 
does what it's supposed to do. It gets my mind off of it and I don't suffer. And for years I didn't suffer. And as a result of that, I was kind of good until eight years ago. I had to have a surgery on what was left of my right leg. Some of the skin got all gnarly and they had to take it off. It was, it was getting like sort of a precancerous condition. So they, like, we had to fix that. The difference with this last surgery, number 36, the difference with this last surgery was I went to Walter Reed to have it. And then I came home to rehab. I was an executive at Wounded Warrior Project at the time, leading a huge team. And all of my team, my only friends were the people that I worked with um, that were like day-to-day friends. Mm -hmm. And because I had to take family medical leave act to leave, to go get the surgery and then go home and rehab alone, Mm -hmm. uh, I was basically alone. I couldn't call my team. I couldn't email my team because of MLA. I was a parent, right? So my 10-year-old was now 18 and joined the army herself. So she was gone. I was divorced from my wife. We shared a three-year-old together. So I said my marriage was a casualty of war. Um, said, in a way, it was. like I was at the hospital for two years and she was in Coma, California. I became a completely different person. She wasn't really around for that transformation. So we went back. We tried for six years. It didn't work. Um, and then... So our three-year-old, I couldn't watch her because I was hopping around on one prosthetic leg and crutches. So I was completely alone. And then so when those invisible wounds started to percolate, I couldn't climb a mountain and I couldn't ride a bike and I couldn't go play golf. I just couldn't do those things. So then it just started, started to spiral. And I am alone. And nobody no one to talk to no like like-minded people no and i didn't want to call my military buddies to tell them i was hurting like i was the one who got called i wasn't the one calling and i just i didn't want to tell them the warrior project because i thought they'd overreact and send me to some like underground treatment facility in tibet somewhere like i didn't like i didn't know so i just was like leaving alone and suffering in silence and i was like having nightmares in the middle of the night and I, then I couldn't get to sleep. And then when I'd wake up with a nightmare, I would take a handful of Benadryl and chase it down with whiskey and just hope I wouldn't wake up in the morning. And I wasn't suicidal. Like, I wasn't taking pills to, to try to end it. I was just taking, taking pills to try to check out. Like, I knew I wasn't going to die, but I just didn't want to deal. And um, so if I could just be as close to comatose as possible, like, that was a win for me. And it got pretty dark. And... I, I knew I wasn't going to commit suicide because I had an eight-week rehab window that I knew at the end of eight weeks I was going to get my leg back, and then I could go resume life as normal. So I can, I can suffer through this for eight weeks, but I finally understood how it happens for those people where I never understood that before. Because if I had no expiration date on the way that I was feeling, it was just like an indefinite period of time I would have to like live like this, no problem. I mean, not no problem, but... I would be one of the 22 for sure. It was like life was not worth living in in those moments. And um, because I didn't see what was beyond the immediate suffering. And I just remember I got a call from a random friend of mine who happened to be a yoga teacher. She was a new yoga teacher because she was my friend before she was a yoga teacher. Then she became a yoga teacher. So I was like, oh, just don't talk to me about yoga. And then, so I told her what was happening. The first human being I shared this with, I told her everything that was happening and tears and snot and the whole thing, okay? Like the whole thing. And she just, at the end of me talking, she paused and she took a breath 
And she said, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. I said, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. I was so mad. Megan, I was so mad. You don't even know. Like, I was like, no, dog. Like, absolutely not. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't own yoga clothes. It's not for me. Like, no. And she, but she was so smart. And um, she just said, okay, got it. No yoga. Well, what about meditation? And I had read like Steve Jobs book about meditation. Like, I was like, okay, that was more palatable. So I said, okay. But I tried it before and sucked at it. And so I was like, I tried it and I sucked. Just let me just teach you how, like maybe you got it wrong. So I agreed. And she taught me that meditation was all about being completely present. And I thought it was about being like empty, you know, which was like this impossible task. And um, so I started meditating twice a day for 20 minutes, twice a day. And things got better, not perfect, but better. And I just remember time went on. I started taking better care of my body. I had gained a bunch of weight and I was started working out again. It's like started taking ownership of my life. And now I got my prosthetic leg back and I went back to work and I made the mistake, Peg. I made the mistake of calling her to say thank you. <laughs> you opened the door. I opened the door. I called her and like any good friend, she said, Oh, so this weird hippie Eastern BS stuff worked for you, huh? And I was like, yes. Like, I'll admit when I'm wrong, right? Yeah. She goes, I think you owe me some yoga. And I said, fine, because I couldn't think of a way to get out of it. Like, she took all my excuses away. So I committed to three private lessons. Private lessons. Not with weird yoga people in the room. Like, just her and me. I had to go to a yoga studio and, like, you know, I was like an all or nothing type of guy. So I just remember I went to go to Lululemon because I was going to buy a yoga outfit. So I refinanced my house and bought a pair of yoga shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a yoga mat. And I just remember going to this yoga studio and then my man card just jumped out of my wallet and started ripping itself up. Like, all right, I guess you're done with this. <laughs> and I just remember going to the yoga studio and Peg, it was hot in there. It's a, you know, it was a power yoga studio. So, um, you know, power yoga and Ashtanga are basically exactly the same. Well, <laughs> you know, said Batabi Joyce back in 95. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I went to a power yoga studio and it's hot in there. And I just remember she teaching me how to stand. She teaching me Tadasana and like what that means in my body. And I'm just like, and I'm still on my one prosthetic still hurting because it's on, but it's like still soupy and kind of bloody in there. And just and I'm like, why is it so hard? And, and she's and they're doing like warrior poses and like, you know, outstretched legs. And, and I'm just like, just remember, it's like really painful and I'm sweating and I'm unstable. And she was saying these stupid things like root down to rise up. I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like what? And I was just mad. And then I just remember one time it was, it was in a warrior one and I was particularly unstable. And I'm like trying to do the pose and my arms were sideways and my, and my body is probably terrible alignment. Uh, uh, yeah, nothing was happening right. There was no drishti. There was no pranayama. There was no like mastery of the asana. I was just like, what am I, what am I doing? And so, and then here I am and I'm so wobbly and she goes, press your feet into the earth. And I was like, say feet one more time, Anna. Watch what happens to you. Like the, my old thug that's coming out from Baltimore. I'm like, say feet. Say feet again. Say feet again. Watch what happens to you. I was, I was throwing, I literally threw my block across the room. I was just, sweat was just everywhere and just not, 
having a moment. I wasn't feeling good about myself. And then I was finally started getting it. And then thank God that practice was over. And I'm like, okay, whew, here we go. I'm uh, driving home and I'm like, check the box. Yoga is not for me. I called it. I was right. And I get home and like you know, an hour later, whatever, my phone rings, it's Anna. And she's like, hey, uh, you want to schedule your next yoga lesson? Number two. And I was like, uh, right about when I was going to tell her exactly where to put that next yoga class, right? I remembered that I committed to three. And a commitment is a commitment, period. And so I scheduled the next class for like two weeks later. Like, I needed some time. I needed some time. So like, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Oh, two weeks. Okay. Huh. And then I show up and I would love to say, Peg, that I just changed my life when I walked in there. I'd love to say that. Nope. Still sucked. I went in and it was still hot and I was still fumbling all over the place. And I just wasn't in it. Like I wasn't in it. Um, like clearly. And she was still saying those stupid things like root down to rise up. And I got so frustrated and so angry, just in, not at her, but just in general. I just said, can I do this with my legs off? And then her eyes opened and her eyes said, no. What am I going to tell you to do with your feet, right? With cues. How am I going to cue your feet like if you're not wearing legs? But her mouth said, let's do it. And I just remember I took my legs off and I threw them across the room, like, because I'm like, get them off and I'm on my mat and I never felt smaller or more insignificant in my life. Like, uh, it was this like big bad dude who's overcome all this stuff. And now I'm like, what, three feet tall, maybe on my knees on a yoga mat and my five foot three tiny yoga teachers towering over me looking at me like, like, what am I going to do now? And I just remember in that moment, I was like, I'm going to just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to fucking do it. Like all in do it. So I'm going to do uh, like poor Anna's behind me, probably wondering, okay, what am I going to tell him to do? Like she's probably just, she's been teaching yoga maybe a year. So she's just probably processing. I can't even imagine what that's like in a private lesson. Now it's changed everything on her. Poor girl. And, uh, but I'm like, I'm going to do warrior one because I'm a warrior. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to do it. Okay. So what is this stuff? She keeps saying root down to rise up. What does it mean? So I just sort of went back to like the sort of sports upbringing of like visualization, right? So like, uh, how do I visualize rooting down and rising up? So I just spread my legs apart, right? So like Vita Badrasana one. So like I, I got it in the kind of right spot. So right hip back, left hip forward, and like kind of playing this in my head. And I just imagined and visualized roots. growing from what was left of my body into, into the ground. And then like when you rise up, so in warrior one, fully express, the rise to find the chest, arms straight up over your head, right? And so I'm like, well, that's the rise up. And in that moment, and, and I have to like throw the disclaimer in here, like, so I'm a dude. I'm a dude, I shoot guns, I eat meat, um, less meat, and I'm very careful where it comes from. Like, <laughs> But I'm a dude, like I'm a dude, shoot guns, eat meat. And um, especially if I go back eight years ago, you know, uh, the who I was, that version of myself then, like um, I was definitely not like somebody who'd say was hippie, 
I'm, I'm using words that, that I would use to use to describe what I thought the yoga community was. Hippie, granola cruncher, tree hugger, like earth daddy, like none of that stuff was, was, was me. Even though I'll hug a tree all day, but I just won't, I just won't tell anybody about it. Um, so I'm just in that. So here I am. I'm like warrior one. Here I go. Visualizing the roots. And in that moment, the earth the, the planet sent this jolt of power, fucking lightning up through my body. <laughs> and my arms flew over my head and I just felt 10 feet tall and more powerful than I ever felt my entire life. It was like the earth was saying, Dan, where have you been for the last 10 years? Just floating above it on prosthetic, disconnected from the thing that connects everything and everyone and it was like the wake-up call that i had just needed and then um, i just remember tears like streaming out of my face i wasn't crying <laughs> tears tears were just happening and then um, i'm just having this like breakthrough moment of my entire life and poor anna still behind me probably wondering what to do with my feet <laughs> and i am just so hooked at this moment i'm like what is this? And uh, it was so powerful and so profound. And then later, and it kind of caught, caught on to it. And then I was like, no, what's next? And then what pose comes after that? And how do I get from there to there? And so we spent the next, that lesson. And then my, my third lesson, like just really, I mastered every pose. Mastered is a really strong word. I had gotten every pose in the journey the power sequence which i, I practiced baptiste yoga which baptiste studied under Pasabi joyce once upon a time and then ruined it for everybody <laughs> just kidding and i'm just kidding it's all love it's just funny to point out sometimes and uh, i just remember uh by the end of my third lesson i had committed to go to the yoga teacher training wow Mm-hmm. And then, like maybe a month later, I was in Hawaii studying with Baron, and so Baron's been my teacher uh, for the last eight years. I think I have fifteen, sixteen hundred hours of training with Baron, and then um, hundreds of hours in other lineages, other styles, other pranayama, meditation, whatever. And just now, now it's like who I am. I've been listening and following and realizing that for somebody that looked for family, mm-hmm. you created family everywhere. You went into the army, you created family. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, all the way through, through, through a bunch of guys from all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. became family. You, I know with the Baptiste, you know, a wounded warrior, you went into wounded mm-hmm. warrior, you were the first, you kind of opened the door um, to warrior speak to having, and, and I mean, they came to right. you, but you've really, and I know that you glossed over it before. Mm-hmm. And I just want to bring attention to you. You speak to other warriors, you go to them, you get a call and you go. And I know that there's a lot that actually that credit you with saving their life. It's um, once you've been on that, you know, it's it is like families worth fighting for. 
um, no, no matter what it is. And, and thank you, yoga community, or, or wait, should I say, you're welcome, yoga community, because now I'm bringing all the bastard stepchildren in. All my military brothers are all finding their ways, and sisters finding their ways to yoga mats all over the planet right now, like, especially here in the U.S. And, um, and that obviously it's not just me, but uh, I'm a huge proponent for really uh, changing the language in the military culture and the veteran culture to be like, this isn't weird. Stop saying it's weird and just, okay, so do it. So practice, to practice with me, right? And then say it's weird. But don't say no before, you, before you've tried it. And I think that's sort of like my, um, the more I practice yoga, the more I want to, to you know, the sadhana, right? So the more I want the more I want to sort of walk that sort of narrow solo path. Um, there's a part of me, but then there's like this bigger part of me. And so it's like, no, 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 no. I got to stay. I got to keep my, this is going to sound like a weird thing. I got to keep my vibration a little lower. Um, so I can be in the trenches with all the bros and all the hooligans and sort of like make it accessible for people who don't think it's for them. Or people who are priced out of it, because let's let's, let's be honest, yoga is uh, not so accessible. Modern day American Western yoga isn't accessible for people who are struggling financially. And again, no one joins the military to get rich. So we got to. I have people. We all need to create opportunities to expose people, because the, the practice is completely free, right? But like learning the practice and being exposed to the practice is not. Um, from a, like you can't make somebody turn on YouTube, right? You got to bring them somewhere. You got to bring them into a studio and a class, and a, you know that. And those things are um, limited, or people's access to that is limited by their circumstance and their situation. Like, what do I want to buy formula for my baby, or do I want to go to yoga? You know. You talked about staying in the trenches and being down and you told me a story last mm -hmm. week about teaching a yoga class over, I guess it was over Zoom, right? It must've mm -hmm. been. Probably. It's been. And, I'm trying um, to remember the story. And you could not, you couldn't see them. Right. So you had to make the, the class accessible right. to anybody that was in there. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was over Zoom. I was in the Dominican Republic, and I was teaching a, a, a class for a for a client actually. So this wasn't these weren't military people, but the I had to teach a had to I got to teach as part of a a, a paid gig for myself. I got to teach a twenty minute asana for anybody. So they had a from a young to an older population. And they had people from all different cultures, all walks of life, all different countries all around the globe. Um, and I couldn't see them. So more than likely some varying levels of disability or ability, um, varying age of, of age, of uh, even sort of reluctance to even try yoga, right? So I had to mm -hmm. sort of manage all of those hurdles on my mat, and I taught from my mat for the first time. I don't teach from my mat ever, 
ever, never, never, never have I ever until this time. And so I had to, well, one, I just made the decision, which is something I've never done either. I took my legs off and practiced with them. So I taught from the mat with my legs off. And so I had to cue for everything scaled up and scaled down. Like I'm on my knees, so you'll be in your feet. And here's, so I had to really transform from point to point, calling the pose to really saying, what's the intent? What's the intention of the pose? And then I had to create it in my body and then sort of articulate it in a way that made it land in any body. Because if I'm feeling and if I'm in the experience of it, then I can think the words just sort of flow. It's funny because I remember our, I remember our talk and I, I remember I said something and not to be weird about it, but it was like kind of profound. I was like, wow, that is what happened. And then I was before our call here, I was like, what did I say? How did I say that? No idea. No record. Absolutely zero recollection of what I, the brilliance that came spilling out of my mouth. No, I don't remember it. But I do remember the this, this story. And that was a big moment for me as a teacher because I realized that um, it wasn't as hard as I thought it might be to just be, to just create language and create possibility in, in, in the asanas for anybody, anybody and anybody. And um, it was huge, it was profound. I don't know if I'm going to teach from my mat just as a practice or, or not, but it was powerful. I think the two, th- the two times you've taken off your legs and you, when, when you were in that yoga class and you were like, you needed to feel that connection. Mm-hmm. It's that experience of you in your body and not being separated from, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you felt it in that moment. And when you went mm-hmm. to teach from that moment, that's, that's where you went to. Exactly, and, yeah. um, and I think in the yoga world in general, sometimes we get so hooked on like what the pose is and what the, you know, what this is. And, and we forget that it's about the experience. Yeah. And right. Mm-hmm. It's the, the asanas are meant to be felt. It's like you're in a controlled environment to put your body into, you know, sometimes extreme positions, right? Especially like in Ashtanga, you're like third, third series, like second series, third series, right? And and have ease in that, like to, 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 to find ease and peace and live in that experience. Like that's the, that's the beauty. That's the moment where the earth kind of lit me up. It was like, I've, um, I've never had that exact experience again, but I've had many versions of that, just like in a fully expressed pose where I just feel alive in from from my fingers to my toes, like my toes that aren't there, mm-hmm. from my fingers to my toes, like this an aliveness in a in a certain posture in a certain asana that is like it's sort of like, yeah, the, I, I'm doing the practice, but the practice is doing me. Like the practice is doing me and like I'm just in the experience of it. And that is like, um, it makes me know this is like my practice is something that I'm doing right. Even though my poses look nothing like the charts that you see with all the little bodies, like doing all the little poses, right? My, my body doesn't look anything like those poses, but I'm doing it a hundred percent perfectly correct. And that's what I try to, share with people I'm like stop looking at uh 
you know, yoga fashion Instagram things. That's not what the pose is. This is what the pose is for you. How does it feel? Right? Like that's what I what I what I try to you know, share with people. I can imagine being in that yoga class. And if you took off your legs and you taught from there, you automatically make me feel I can do this. I can be here. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it takes, it erases all these preconceptions of what you think it's supposed to be. Or, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, Instagram is a lovely place and it is like mm-hmm. a terrible place sometimes, <laughs> but just like to be able to connect with somebody from that visceral level and to have a teacher. And uh, I mean, of course I know you and you, this is what makes you such a powerful teacher is that you teach from this very visceral place, not up here, mm. but down here, right with you. It's what mm. makes you such an amazing, it's it's what has helped so many warriors that you've gone to see, mm. that you go to them, you're there and you've been there. But also when you teach like that, I've, I'm here with you, not I'm here. I'm here with you. Yeah, there's a a lot of teachers. They get like um, like stage fright, not stage fright, but like a pre. Oh, did I sequence this class right? Oh, is how's my playlist gonna be? Uh, is it the right? And I'm like, oh my god, and and that and that sounds judgy. I, I don't mean it that way. I just wish all teachers would just come from. I'm teaching because I just fucking mean it. I mean it. I want to share this with someone to get what I got out of it. I don't care if I, I'll, I'll skip sides. I'll forget I did the right or that. I'll literally ask them, guys, where are we? Right? Because I'm like, what happened? What did we do? Did we already do the right side? Right? I, I don't care. I'm not concerned about how I like looking good like I'm not concerned about like oh my god it was just such an articulate masterful the words he was saying were so, I'm like I, I want people to get something I want them to have the experience of the asanas in their body I want them to feel alive I want them to I want them to get what I got and so I teach like I mean it because I do and that doesn't mean, and I don't like teaching with music. Uh, I do sometimes, and it is, it can be fun, but like, I'm not a music, like I want breath. You want to fill the space, breath. I want your breath to fill the space. I want you to be, I want your drishti to be so on point that you don't even notice anything else in the room. It's just you and your mat and, and the practice. And like, that's what I want to create. Um, and I think the reason I don't wear, don't wear, uh, or I don't teach from the mat because when I practice, it's legs off hundred percent of the time. But when I teach, I like to, I like to walk around and see bodies. I'm also a physical assister, which has really been hard these days. Well, it takes away a connection yeah. and the relationship and it's, and it, 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 you know, that is, I mean, that's everything. <laughs> connection and relationship is mm. everything. And yeah, I, I totally I totally get that. I think we don't really realize how powerful it is just to be 
in your body and move and just to connect with another human being. And, you know, these very simple we take for granted. I mean, when you were at home recuperating, that's the first time you couldn't be, you weren't moving, you weren't able, right? I mean, that was, right. and you were alone. So then the human, the connection with people and the connection with me wasn't there. And yoga at its very simplistic, you know, the very base of it, that's what it is. It's connecting with me and together in relationship with you or others. So. And sometimes it, it, I find this a lot in the warrior community too. Sometimes it's daunting even when people know because they don't want to be connected to themselves because they have this feeling of guilt, mm-hmm. uh, of unworthiness. Mm-hmm. Um, combat is, is, is something that I don't wish on anyone. Uh, what you experience, what you, what you see, what you do, um, all for the right reasons, right? So intentionality is pure. And though the, but the, the, the actions you have to perform perform a combat are, are not ones that make you sleep well at night, you know? Um, and sometimes people like really shy away from like looking within because they, cause it's, cause it's dark and the lid is on tight and they don't want to crack it open because they're afraid of what's going to come out. And I use these analogies. So I, I, I teach people yoga. I also uh, teach storytelling. So I teach people to share, especially if their story is intense and powerful, like how to, how to share that story in a way that's healing and not harmful. And part of, part of that um, process is like sort of teaching them like they, where you have all these things locked up that you don't talk about. It's like a pressure container. And the more you don't let the pressure out, the more that's going to build up. And eventually that container is going to rupture. And we don't want to know what that looks like. It could look a lot of different ways and none of them are good. So we just let the pressure out. And that way we can pull these stories out and put them back out in front of us. And yeah, maybe there's tears left that uh, weren't cried that maybe that needs to happen. Maybe there's anger that needs to be expressed. Maybe there's, maybe you need to scream or maybe you need to go on a you know, 10 mile run. Maybe you need to, you know, maybe punish yourself in a certain way to get to work through something like physically, viscerally. And then you put that, you put that memory back away that much cleaner, that much more dealt with that much lighter. And so, yeah, the memories are like, I still have vivid memories of everything. Some of the worst moments in combat, some that, some that I shared. And so when I think about Mike uh, in the, in the Humvee, right? I see a horrific scene that I would not want to describe. However, I see it very clearly. And though I've transformed all those memories. So when I get uh, visibly moved, when I'm sharing a story about something uh, powerful like that, the, the, the emotion isn't coming from, uh, fear, anger, despair, the, the, the emotions coming from this nostalgic recollection of what an amazing human being Mike was and what he taught me about hard work and his work, work ethic. It's sort of like remembering like the moments that I've had with his family since then. And so my relationship with his kids, those things 
or what moves me. It's not like people might misplay the, oh, he's very, he's torn up about his losing his friend and what he saw. No, not at all. That's all dealt with. The emotion comes from like what's real now and it's all good and it's, and it's restorative. And it, when I finish telling a story that, that seems pretty horrific, I feel actually kind of lit up afterward. I feel inspired to go, like, be a, go be a better version of myself than I was before I told the story. And that, that type of, um, those things are, are available for all people. And so that's why I want to share it. And I think that is a really key and paramount to resiliency, right? Is if you think the world is going to end, I mean, that's a terrible way to feel. And just like it was a, similar to that old Henry Ford quote, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Well, I will tell you the one goal that you said, I, I have, it's been on my mind the whole time, ever since you said it, what's happening in May. My daughter's getting married. So I get to do the whole bride thing. And I get to be there. Even though it's the 17 year cicadas and she's going to be getting married outside. All right. I'm sorry that I told you about that. <laughs> That's perfect. That's good. How, if somebody wanted to study with you, if somebody wanted to, how can they do that? I wish I had a better answer, but I can say this. You can stay tuned to my website. So Dan at Dan Nevins. So Dan Nevins.com. So my email is Dan at Dan Nevins.com because there's a few things in the works uh, that are, that are virtual. And if you're ever in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, um, we're about to open a wellness center in August. So um, massage, body work, energy healings, private. I will teach only private uh, yoga lessons uh, and then group meditation every day. Amazing. Amongst other things. Yep. Amazing. And you're coming out to Montana soon. And I'm coming to Montana. We're going to fly fishing. Totally. And, uh, or just hanging out. Stargazing. Stargazing. Number one for me. I'm a big, like, I want to see the stars. I feel something. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Megan. So glad to see you all the way over there in down under. <laughs> Shit on the body. And all those other cliche things that people say. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. How you going? Exactly. That's the sense of my Australian accent. Otherwise, it that, turns British. It. It's weird. It's, like... it's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dan. Love you guys. Bye, Dan. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. And don't forget to visit ashtangadispatch.com for links and notes pertaining to today's show with Dan. And while you're there, make sure that you're on our email list to receive our full moon musings, where each month we'll explore various elements of nature and practice. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Peg Queen, along with Megan Powell. Music you're hearing is by Mark Pilly. Thanks again. <laughs>